it's it's been ready before we're ready. In fact, I mean, you just said your first words, uh, live streaming. We have zero viewers right now, so nobody's looking at this. We can say whatever Excellent. you want. This is actually our 10th episode. Dude, we've been like doing this for 10, 10 weeks. 10 weeks. I mean, it's kind of nuts. Uh, yeah. I think it's just almost as high a commitment as I have had for, you know, um, yeah, I mean, wife and family, I suppose. I mean, no, I'm kidding. I have done things for longer. Wife and family, Euroscopic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it's still a labor of love. So obviously, when yeah. for this, it, I think it's, it, it says something about us uh, that we're sitting in Germany speaking English about European politics to an audience we don't have. Um, <laughs> it, I think it, it says something about us. I'm not sure it says anything good about us, but... No, I mean, it would just be sort of the beginning of, uh, you know, neurological deterioration, which as a matter of fact, to me, I have very early signs of neurological deterioration. I uh, realized this week that I like uh, Handel Arias. Um, I don't like Tchaikovsky yet. Maybe maybe this sounds like too highbrow a joke, uh, but, but fuck it. Um, yeah, I discovered that I really love Handel Arias. I have like sort of bits and pieces uh, I listen to a lot of classical music because it suits me and it puts the children to sleep. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I mean, but that's that that's it. I don't know. I mean, do you listen to any classical music? I do. I do. I, I'm 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 quite a fan of uh, Mahler, for example. I, I've listened. I've gone to the Philharmonie in Berlin a few times and first heard a few of his pieces. I'm a big. I've always been a big fan of classical music. I think it probably goes through. When I was like a teenager in my filmmaking years, before I went the journalist route, I thought I was gonna go the fictional route into filmmaking. And that got me really into music scores and composers in that regard. And I think through that, that was like the gate, my gateway drug into classical music. And then listening to, for example, The Planets is still one of my favorites. Um, you should say that, because I actually uh, you know, went into philosophy ultimately, but moved to the US to study filmmaking. Then I discovered that you actually had to work in teams with other people. And at that point I was like, well, fuck it, no way, it's not gonna work. No, so better to be a philosopher where you'll make less, even less money, but at least you can be alone. Indeed, indeed. Nobody, yeah. you don't need to smell anybody. Then I went into journalism, yeah. you're constantly smelling people, but that's another story. Anyhow, we cannot extend ourselves forever. Although the problem with life is that apparently you can, we can just do the Rogan thing. And yeah, let's not do the Rogan thing. Rogan, it's like it's like Donald Trump. Only Donald Trump works for Donald Trump. Only Rogan works for Rogan. You can't emulate that. We come from Latin America. We call that Fidel Castro, right? It was well, wonderful. Of... Only Castro is Castro. Only Castro is Castro. We're not Castro. Uh, so no. We, this week. <laughs> yeah, we can't cut. We can't cut this out. We can't cut this out. So I think that my coughing should become part of like my online persona it should be your brand yeah brand Anyhow, i think if you're going to cough this much if you're going to cough this much martin you should at least start taking up chain smoking i i thought about it i mean i get all the liabilities yeah. but not of the bloody assets so yeah you know. you're Anyhow, doing it wrong uh this week uh it's all about poland poland poland, poland always Polska. Poland. I, I mean i love poland i mean i know it has a lot of political problems but you know, my family several generations ago comes from Poland. I've been to the town where my, you know, the last generation w lived before they, they got on a boat and came to the United States in the 1880s. I have a deep affinity with Poland uh, that's completely separate from whatever political shenanigans are going on in the country. I love the people. I love the food. I love I love the beer, of course, the vodka. I love the I love the, the, the just the, the nature. 
I love how close it, it is to get to from from Berlin. There's lots of things I love about. Uh, we uh, we just we just spent sort of you know uh, six hours in Poland uh, a week ago because we're actually only forty minutes. Yeah, away. Can, I mean we're exactly. really right there. The thing though is uh, yeah, it, this is a very strange thing because I also have actually a fairly close, very close relationship actually with Poland, almost family. Not my actual family, but sort of, you know, about 20 years of very intense relations, particularly with Warsaw. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I like Zhuvodovka quite a bit. Uh, you know, the vodka that has a piece of grass that has been peed upon by... Yes, of course, by, by the bison, by the bison, the wild bison of Poland. Exactly. But, I mean, I must say that um, I really have uh, no joy in Polish politics, although I think that it might be one of the most interesting uh, sort of laboratories for... It is very interesting. It's such a nationalist government, but also one of the most, at least according to opinion polls, the people are still the most open and favorable towards the European Union. Which actually has, in a couple of occasions, put the government in a very strange or often quite tough position because they like to go out and shout, you know, Western values uh, are not bicycles, uh, are not lesbians, are not uh, shish kebab. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, you know, the sort of bicycles, lesbians and shish kebabs from Brussels, Berlin and Paris uh, are sort of greatly celebrated among the population. So, I mean, they love the money that comes from being part of the project of, you know, lesbian shish kebabs and bicycles. As a matter of fact, I'm saying bicycles because obviously lesbians and, and gays and, and sexual minorities are an obvious target. Uh, but bicycles are a less obvious target. It ha they have, however, been the target uh, of, of the, you, uh, the Polish right uh, in terms of pointing out the deterioration of, of manliness uh, in Europe. Yeah. And and not only not you know not only in Poland but of course kind of populist groups and center right groups all around Europe kind of hold up the bicycle as sort of the end the end of uh, masculine car culture and exactly. the end of the end of the end of modern industry evolution I mean to me it's very strange because I am the one that sweats on the bicycle my wife doesn't have one but it's my wife that actually drives uh, after my driving license was stolen I never really bothered to. We knew it, so you know. I, oh yeah, I masculine, masculine, like a masculine concept that has nothing to do with one's actual sex. I mean, you can you can really embrace, uh, you know, a, a masculine ideal or stereotypes, regardless of who you actually are. I must say, I mean, I am a conservative. I do see my wife as, as as very feminine, and I see myself as sort of impeccably masculine. I mean, I don't know how many viewers we just lost. When from from zero, we just lost zero. So Great. Statement is quite okay. Uh, Fantastic. But, I mean, what I would say is that uh, also my general political disposition is that I don't really care much what people do in so much as, you know, in so far as they don't really dictate what I need to do or, you know, uh, what my friends need to do or what my extended family needs to do. Uh, and I think that this is kind of the place where a lot of the Polish politics, uh, which is a politics very often of that dictation, uh, very often very oppressive, that has actually taken minority groups, Im immigrants among them, until, we'll talk about this, but until very recently, African immigrants, now it has moved on to Ukrainian immigrants, who are also part of the of the, of the the agenda items and targets of the Polish far right. Uh, you know, this kind of politics of exclusion that has really 
build its political identity uh, sort of as a precondition to its national identity and its national identity around these ideas of sort of, you know, uh, essentially ethno ethnocultural chauvinism. Um, yeah, I fully disapprove of. I find them absolutely egregious. I have no point yeah. in contact and I have nothing good to say about them. Uh, what I am interested in, and we have discussed this in previous episodes, is um, that I think that it's always interesting to try to understand what is that moves voters in the direction of this kind of projects, let's say 70 years after, you know, the worst of nationalism, the most murderous forms of nationalism. Mm have actually, you know, issued in concentration camps and, and deaths and so on. Why is that people actually buy into this kind of projects? I mean, not to say, obviously, that the PIS is a, a national socialist project, although they certainly have a nationalist component and they certainly have socialist components, but, I mean, not associated with Nazism. It's this idea of national exclusivity which is much more difficult to understand as an appeal. And generally, my theory remains that a lot of this has to do with the fact that people are in need, and when they go to the traditional parties, they are very often treated as a bag of deplorables. As, as Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I wouldn't, there, that's one aspect of how they're mistreated or disrespected or don't feel like traditional parties uh, represent them anymore, at least. There's also just a lack of imagination and a lack of ideas about what liberalism or centrism can offer. I mean, if you look at, I mean, we're talking about Poland because there's so many stories popping up about Poland we're going to get into, but they all lead back to the fact that we have a, a major national election coming up in Poland in the middle of October. So all these things are about politicking and appealing to constituencies and appealing for votes. I mean, we'll probably touch on this, get into more details later in, in, in our talking to each other right now, but the lack of ideas, I mean, when Donald Tusk is the is the alternative to the PIS party that's been in power, this, as you say, not a national socialist party, but certainly a nationalist and socialist in small letters uh, party, uh, you know, we've been there, done that. And if this is the best that sort of centrism or liberalism or cosmopolitanism sort of wants can 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 deliver basically old ideas from the 90s or the early 2000s which are exactly reasons that uh like people have there are so many people are pissed off and feel un unrepresented and have moved to these more extreme parties i mean i think it's not so much the focus on the populist parties the far-right parties i think it's very understandable why these parties have kind of popped up over the last decade it's the failure of imagination and failure of ideas to offer anything new instead you have either a centrist or a liberal party in the case of donald tusk offering up old ideas basically saying vote for me to just prevent worse things from happening or you're having centrist parties just becoming trying to emulate or take from the playbook of parties further to the right um so it basically becomes the far right just in other words or in in sheep's clothing uh so either way uh, the issue is not so much about the rise. For me, the issue is not about the rise of the far right. I think it's very understandable uh, why that why that phenomenon is occurring while we're seeing it. I think it's more the question of where is this, you know, the, the liberal project since World War II in a, across the Western world? Where Where is it? You know, where are the new ideas? It, it, it can't be enough. You're not going to get people to go to the polls to say, polls, no pun intended, the, the voting booth. Uh, it's not going to be, it's not a very encouraging message to say, uh, vote for me will bring back the good old days of the 90s. Um, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
No, I think that that's true. But I mean, I think that the problem is not only that we have, I mean, all of that granted, I think it's a main point that I want to make. I think that, 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 that the assessment is correct. I think that the further point is that not only uh, we're not going back to the good old days of the 90s, not to mention the 80s, I mean, late 80s, when Poland sort of loomed large in all geopolitics mm. of their, you know, uh, position the border and their 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 marches and and you know Solidarność and 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 the people that were basically at the forefront of bringing down communism. The further problem is that I think that we have twenty years of failure or thirty years of failure, precisely this figure. So I mean, the funny thing about Tusk is that Tusk Donald Tusk is really a figure that is it's it's kind of the perfect foil. Right. I mean, whether he's capable of like unifying the opposition or not remains to be seen. I think that at this point it's fairly clear that he's not. Nonetheless, the point is that it is kind of the perfect foil on which the PIS was built. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was built precisely on the failure of this type of center, like Polish conservatism, to really express conservative ideas in a way that was consistent with the, with the population. So I think that for whatever shenanigans, whatever techniques, whatever method to the madness of the PIS, its relation with Radio Maria and all these sort of very unsavory sort of radical groups across the country, including neo-Nazi groups and anti-Semites of different stripes and whatnots, Besides all of that, the fact is that this is once again the repetition of this sort of political failure at the gates of a crisis that yeah. has no other candidates to offer. So it's really pathetic. I mean, it's 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 just you want to talk about deplorables. I mean, it's really the centrist and liberal parties that are deplorable. Like, where are the new ideas? Where is the imagination? Where is something that people can get excited about? Um, that's not just a recycled a recycled platform from the past. Sure enough. I mean, okay, I think that there is a question about excitement. I'll grant you that. But I think that to me, in cases, I, I mean, I know Poland fairly well. I know Germany quite well. I know Italy very well and so on. And I can tell you that, you know, it is not Rome. It is not Warsaw. It is not, you know, well, forget Berlin. Let's leave that aside. It's not Munich, <laughs> not Hamburg. Right. I mean, there are people out there that are, as Americans like to put it, are hurting. There are people out there yeah. without access. So, you know, when you have the Polish government going out and presenting these social programs like Orban is doing of promotion of the family, I mean, which essentially you have like a price for every extra kid that you have. These things actually are effective ways not only to mobilize the base, but are also very effective ways to address very specific needs. So the problem is not just a lack of imagination. The problem is not just a lack of new ideas. The problem is the absolute, in my mind at least, is the absolute thorough, consistent, and irredeemable sort of pitch death and blindness to the very specific and very clear problems. If you have people that are actually in a situation of need and you can do nothing, absolutely nothing, in over a 20-year period, other than tell them, well, tighten your belts because it's going to get rough. If that's your only solution, then it's obvious that you, you do not belong in public life, you do not belong in public administration. Now, I think that this does not really sort of, this does not really address a basic issue with the political formation, which is in the, at the forefront of all of these parties and alignments that are actually occupying those those political markets, let's say. They're actually capturing those voters because the old parties had been 
absolutely incompetent in dealing with them. And when they hear, hey, we have we're afraid of immigration. Hey, we're afraid that, you know, we cannot send our daughters to the schools because we have actually very conservative Muslim families or, you know, that 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 find this actually problematic and, you know, whatever it is. When what you have in response is like, well, you're just, you know, a fascist, a Nazi, a racist, uh, a deplorable, then, I mean, it's very clear that you're actually just pushing those people in the direction into the arms of those parties. The problem is that at the forefront of that, uh, what you have standing are people that actually have a general tendency to like to, you know, purify culture, like sort of reintegrate very old ideas of the greatness of the nation and so on. And not only they take it, you know, as we as we are just about to discuss, not only they have problems with, you know, real immigrants, they not only have problems with sort of, you know, real sort of, I don't know, I mean, anti-Polish, anti let's say, sentiment, they also have the tendency, right-wing parties, I think, across the board, but in this case, the PIS has, has been at the forefront of this, of producing boogeymen who actually mm. Use of being anti-Polish. I actually, I must say, for full disclosure, I have been the target. Uh, as I'd been uh, a Deutsche Welle journalist, I gave an interview to a Spanish uh, outlet on anti-Semitism in Poland, and they became the immediate target of the Polish far, far right. Uh, Deutsche Welle underperformed uh, drastically, as, as, as I was hoping for some, uh, you know, cover. Uh, but uh, the thing ran for like a good two or three months I, with the threats and so on. It was remarkable because I had not really said anything during that period, during that interview, which was actually blaming the Polish nation for anything. I have said. Yeah, but they are so super sensitive. And we saw this with like the the concentration camp issue, you know, passing a law about Polish concentration camps, which actually. No. Concentration camps, Poles, there are many Poles who were certainly collaborators and friendly to the Nazi regime or just trying to survive. Um, but they made this whole political to do out of not calling the Polish concentration camps, but actually you wouldn't call it a Polish concentration camp because it was a Nazi concentration camp in occupied Poland. Nonetheless, it became this big political, uh, you know, this big political scandal where then you had to take sides because of course, to agree with just the basic historical fact put you on the side of far right populists and nationalists and revisionists. So of course you had to push back and say, well, no, that's a violation of freedom of speech. We can say whatever we want, but actually it's just historical fact. Um, and that's that's what that's what's part of the problem with this with this sort of polarization and the weaponization of national issues. Right. I mean, so, you know, one of the first actually newspapers to get sued was actually an Argentinian newspaper. I mean, very large by Argentinian size, but very, very small by, you know, media standards. Uh, and they all of a sudden found themselves in front of like an international an international um you know, an international case, I mean, uh, which they hardly could afford. So part of the strategy of the Polish government, and it's uh, a lot of uh, groups associated with the Polish with the Polish machine, with the Polish right wing political machine, is essentially lawfare and, and, and juridical terror. So, I mean, somebody would say sort of, you know, a Polish concentration camp. And of course, I'm doing that between between, you know, uh, between uh, quotation marks. I Air quotes or maybe German ones. You can do you can do you can do German ones. Well, I think that, you know, you you end up in this game, as you well pointed out, which is, well, there were Nazi concentration camps, but they were or German concentration camps. Yeah, German concentration camps. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, exactly 
what is the line? So I think that the interesting thing is that in the end, it has nothing really to do with the historical fact. It has nothing to do with the concentration camp. It has little to do certainly with Polish participation in that. And it has nothing to do with Polish victimization, those concentration camps, which clearly, I mean, I, I don't need to tell anybody of the amount of like death that the Nazis caused among the Polish population. And in right. that, I include the Jews, I mean, that were, you know, Polish Jews. Um, right. I Most think, people don't know that of the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust, three million of them. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We're Polish. So three million Jews. Uh, or in you know, Poland, I should say. And probably and probably three million non-Jewish Poles, I mean, depending, depending who you right. ask. I mean, this has actually even affected, uh, obviously, academic discussions. You know, they had been reports. I mean, as a matter of fact, direct reports to me, it concerns me directly, of uh, conferences in France in which far-right polls had barged in because it was being discussed. Uh, papers were being presented about Polish citizens' participation in Jew hunting uh, or, you know, or Jew selling, which was a practice in which, you know, people would get compensation for denouncing, denouncing Jews. Right. To mention, I mean, the killing of Jews uh, during pogroms, even all the way to the end of the war, after the Nazis were already gone. So this is the case of, you know, the book, the famous book Neighbors, and and, and much more recent, much more recent Grabowski's like uh, 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 research as well. The point is that we are in. I think that the Polish case of the PIS is very, very interesting because at the core of the EU, you actually have an entire country sort of ruled by which has actually essentially the nation state power within the European architecture, which is actually capable of silencing sort of journalists, intellectual authors and so on, just to establish their version of history, which I don't care how close I am to agreeing with their version of history. Of course, I mean, Nazis are the ones that, you know, that set it up. Nazis are the ones that run it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want this crap enforced by, you know, terrorizing. Right. terrorizing this is people. when you have to, this is when you have to, you know, everyone goes to their corners and you have to take sides. And right. the facts, the facts then don't really matter because, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 you don't want to end up siding with the people that you're ideologically, you know, the ones who are, right. who are historical revisionists. Well, I, I would say I'm, I, I'm very happy to tell like the PIS that as a matter of fact, you know, we mostly agree, we mostly agree on sort of the articulation of what is the, what was the case. We just completely disagree about what is the method of establishing those historical facts. And right. The politically and the, 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 the illiberal means with which uh, historical fact is enforced or I mean, even even enforcing fact is is, is already problematic. Yeah, it's an absolute outrage. I mean, enforcing right. enforcing a truth. So we need what a truth ministerium. We're now like playing in Norway's right. like little game. So this week, as a matter of fact, we had precisely this kind of story yet again and yet again from the Polish government, uh, and it was kind of funny because this time they did not take it like sort of against real immigrants, as you said in your very beautifully crafted menu for this week's meal. Uh, no, they actually took it, you know, they had a fight with a movie. They had a fight yeah. with movie characters. So now you have on one side of the ring, the Polish government. On the other side of the ring, fictional characters. Yeah, fictional characters, which based on what I've read, a lot of the, the, the government officials in Poland criticizing this film, which we'll get into, uh, haven't even seen it. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, let's go through this uh, quite quite quickly. I mean, the basic right. story is that 
you know, a film about um, a film about essentially immigrants in Poland trying to reach Belarusia, a fictional piece, but based on obviously the right. Well, the the other way, stuck in stuck stuck in Belarus, trying to get into Poland, based on a true story right. from what's been happening the last couple of years um, of of Belarus. You know, if you if you if you take the EU side, basically Belarus weaponizing migration as a as a tool of war, non you know non non violent war uh, or guerrilla warfare against the EU by sending migrants from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, etc. Uh, you know, inviting them in to Belarus and then saying yes, go across our border into Poland. Obviously, this story is actually particularly poignant because we are now in a situation, I mean, and, and Agnieszka Holland, of whom we'll, I'll talk in a second, but it's particularly poignant because, uh, you know, this is kind of a mechanics that Europe is setting itself up for, uh, not necessarily in Belarusia, where there is no relation because of the current war in Ukraine and the relation of, of Lukashenko with Putin, but most certainly in Tunisia, in Libya, in Turkey, and so and so on and so forth. So that is this outsourcing of you know right. migration control and border control also means that people like Erdogan had essentially their finger in their their finger in the trigger. They can say, well, if I don't get the money, I'll open the gates, and once right. again, we'll be sitting in Vienna watching these people sort of watching Syrians kind of parade down the street with you know with yeah. jugs. Although in the happen. case of the case of Belarus, when it, when it was really reaching its height, and the EU was accusing Belarus of using migrant migrants as a weapon against the EU to put pressure, uh, internal pressure on Pol um sorry, put internal pressure on the EU to to stoke divisions, political divisions in the EU. Um, we were talking about a few thousand migrants, and so for the EU to make the claim, I have no doubt that Belarus. This was a this was an intentional and strategic move for Belarus to put political pressure and to an, an effort to to create internal divisions within the EU. But for the EU to turn around and say this will break the EU when they were really talking about a few thousand migrants, that that the EU to to take a lovely line from one of our favorite uh, sort of centrist liberals. Uh, in America anyway, uh, when they go low, you go high, the EU could have had a different response. Uh, this is going back to like 2021, 2022, um, and saying, okay, so Belarus is sending in, you know, Belarus, this despotic government that has no respect for human rights or democracy, uh, they're sending in migrants. Okay, we'll take them. They could have taken that response. They could have had the humanitarian, they could have they could have fulfilled their own liberal, their their own so-called liberal values, their own uh, cohesion uh, or adhe adherence to democratic values. And said, okay, it's a few thousand people in in a block of 27 countries, uh, of 450 million people, and a GDP that's you know competes with the United States. A few thousand migrants from Syria and Iraq, whatever, we'll take them. But they didn't do that. Instead, they pushed back, and they basically they basically the the, the European Union literally pushed back. Uh, you know, and and uh, essentially assumed the very same kind of authoritarian uh, response that a country like Belarus would do in relations to minorities or, or external forces, external populations, and essentially tried to keep them out. Sorry, I think you're right. I think that it has to be said, though, that migration is a very hot potato in European politics. Oh, yeah. willing to take the step is also very clearly inviting, uh, you know, inviting sort of the far right to actually make the, their case yet again. Uh, anyway, the point here is that 
Agnieszka Holland, who some people might remember, I remember because I'm very old, uh, uh, Europe, Europe, or the Europa, Europa, uh, which was a movie about the Nazi, the Nazi period. Um, she made this movie, and uh, the movie basically, uh, which I haven't seen, and I probably will not see because I don't really uh, deal with movies, uh, but the movie apparently is a rather harrowing account of a, of a family uh, moving uh, from through through Belarusia, trying to trying to get into Poland, uh, the Polish government uh, went full out and like got into a fight with this woman who is now actually so Agnieszka Holland is now threatening with suing, uh, yeah, you know the 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 Polish government for calling her Nazi or sympathizing with Nazis. Uh, or her the- film, her her film resembling Nazi propaganda during <laughs> during the World War Two. Specifically, specifically, okay. I mean, I don't know how far this will go, but I think that it will go until it will. I'll tell you, Martin, it will go until October 15th when there's the election. (laughs) So, I mean, that's how far that's how far these issues will go. These are it's pure politics, right? So, I mean, I think that this is what is interesting, right? I mean, to the one to on the one side, it really just fits into the politicking and and sort of the politicking and and crap that sort of the the, the political parties across the board. I mean, this is not only Poland and by no means only the the, the PIS, uh, but it's really this sort of communicational detritus that sort of they produce in order to feed like as bread and circus for the people. On the other right. hand, on the other hand, what you have is something that sort of incrementally in the cultural space and in the sphere, it actually gets taken up. So it's true that politically it might have actually, you know, an expiration date somewhere in October after the polls wake up in the morning and find out that yet again, they have another, you know, 150 years ahead with the PIS. Uh, but <laughs> the fact is that in the cultural space and in the context of a European election in June 2024, which is actually very likely, I mean, everything continues to point and, as a, a, and, and you know, in the direction of actually a right-wing wave coming in, many of these political issues, if they are politically successful in building the brand of the PIS farther and sort of cementing farther its power, I think that these are things that are going to be taken up by other actors who, you know, will see with great pleasure the fact that this could be effective ways to build an electorate. Oh, of course. And what I find ironic in the case of the Polish government that is very sensitive to issues of the Second World War and the Nazi occupation of Poland, and when it suits their interests, very, very protective of how that gets defined, how it gets used, um, who gets compared to a Nazi, who gets compared to that time period, um, and wants to really you know, protect the status and the, the specialness of that historical moment. But when it's in their interest, they're happy to compare a filmmaker or her storytelling to the Nazis. So I, I, the whole thing is, is rather disingenuous, even if, even if you wanna give them, grant them that maybe the film, and I, I also have not seen it, I'm only responding to, to the Polish, uh, the official Polish response to it, responding to the response for as much sense as that makes. Um, even if you wanna grant them that the story is told unfairly and it makes the Polish polls look bad, which by the way, the filmmaker uh, denies, but even if you wanna grant them that, it still doesn't make them Nazis. It still doesn't make the film Nazi propaganda. Um, and to always just, res- it, it just gets old, you know, uh, when everyone's a Nazi, nobody's a Nazi. And like, what does that even do to our historic, our understanding of, of history? Well, I mean, I'm very, pro- I'm very, very partial to uh, a term that was used, if I'm not mistaken, by Alan Bloom, who's uh, 
you know, a Chicago academic, uh, famous for the closing of the American mind. I think it was his line, which um, might have been Harold Bloom, who had nothing to do with him, or it might have been anybody else. I'm, I'm old and I don't remember. But the line was basically uh, about the overuse of Hitler and the overuse of Nazism. Right. Argument. And he called it, you know, argumentum ad Hitlerum. So everything is Hitler. <laughs> You don't like it. It's just freaking Hitler, right? I mean, right. Uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, Black, when he was in a, uh, when he was in the Daily Show, um, he has actually a little piece on the use of Goebbels, or as he said, Goebbels, uh, which <laughs> are uh, in America. Gerbils. Gerbils. Exactly, little gerbil. <laughs> uh, anyway, so now let's move on to Poland, where a big again. <laughs> let's stay in Poland. Right, right. We have not moved. Um, so, well, well, the, the, well, well, we moved from Venice back to Poland since the film was was well received at the Venice Film Festival, and that's where a lot of this controversy, this fake controversy, has has sort of surfaced. So, we'll go back to the to the homeland, to the to the nation of Poland. Yes, let's return to the let's return to the to the to the territorial plate. Uh, yeah. So, uh, a scandal blew up. What do you know about it? Which one? I mean, we, we have a long list. We have, oh, we're talking about the, you know, while we're talking about the visa scandal. Of course, the visa scandal. Oh, this, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful because, you know, we, 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 we have a popular, we have a populist nationalist, anti-migrant, suspicious of foreigners, uh, specifically foreigners from a particular part of the world, government. And yet now they're being accused of having handed out uh, a couple hundred thousand visas and, and basically a pay for play scheme to those very same people applying for work visas, asylum, these kinds of things, and, and basically making money off of canning out visas to let people into Poland. Um, and it, it's just a beautiful, it, it's, it's just a beautiful irony that you really, one of those times that fact is better than fiction. I would say that it confirms one of my biggest suspicions and one of my greatest sort of fights with all this like nonsense American accounts of identity. Uh, mm. I think it you very clearly that class completely trumps color, right? Even for Absolutely. The shouting Islam and, you know, halal and Sharia and like they're coming for our daughters and like what the hell not has like the far right in Poland been shouting. Uh, but then they found out that they had cash to pay for visas. Yeah. It's like, well, money, money talks. Class no. always beats. It's like rock, paper, scissors. You know, class, class beats race, ethnicity every time. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's you know, in a way, it, it's fantastic. I mean, I tend to think that corruption, uh, you know, is a scape valve in places where extreme pressure cannot be released in any other ways. So, I mean, you know, I had a, a long conversation many years ago with some other idiot from Transparency International here in Berlin, uh, a fine gentleman, by the way. And he was telling me that, you know, he didn't care. Corruption is bad wherever it is. And I said, well, yes. But then had there not been a corrupt Cossack standing at the border, very likely my family would have been, you know, cooked up inside an oven uh, of a German concentration camp in Poland. So obviously, I mean, there is nothing pretty about corruption other than the fact that it actually helps to regulate this kind of things. I think that in this case, it's lovely because it happened to Poland. And I think right. it's a perfect opportunity for people that were crying and shouting and screaming and vomiting holier than thou and holier than thou and holier than thou and holier than thou. 
and clearly they show that they're just not. But to add one layer of holier than now, of course, the EU, you know, in Brussels, the European Commission is asking for questions from Poland to clarify the situation. Poland has sent a partial letter, a partial response saying this is a exaggerated in the media. It was at most a couple hundred people through a external, like a, a, a private company that the government was working with. And as soon as they found out that this was happening, they canceled the contracts. Um, and to Poland's credit, this was first uncovered by Poland's own internal anti-corruption bureau. So there is some functionality of rule of law and some functionality right. of institutions in Poland. Um, right. Nonetheless, the European Union itself is in hot water and various member states are in hot water for giving out these so-called golden golden visas or golden passports for anybody with enough money or enough assets um, to essentially get permanent residency, if not citizenship in Malta, in Greece, in Portugal, even in Germany. You know, there's things like it's a slightly lower caliber, but in Germany you have, you know, the Blauakata, which if you are going to create enough jobs and you bring enough capital into the country, you basically get permanent residency immediately. Now, of course, you can argue that that's, you know, economic stimulus is good for the country. It makes jobs for, for people living here. Um, so they want to give people who are kind of bringing that kind of clout into the country, they want to give them a leg up. But that's another kind of, of, of classism, right? If you have money, if you were a business person, if you're an entrepreneur, well, you can go right to the front of the line because you're bringing in X millions of, of euros, you're hiring 20, 50, 100 people. Um, therefore, you can get permanent residency where, you know, your average person, even a, an educated person, someone with a college education, you know, we're not talking about the dregs of the earth, but if you're not here to to, uh, you know, essentially stimulate the economy, well, you can get in line like everybody else. So the EU, both as a bloc and in individual nation states, also are dealing with issues of, you know, um, it might not be corruption or bribery in the in the purest oh. legal form, but it is a kind of play, pay for play scheme um, that the EU is trying to crack down on. But what we're seeing in Poland is, it, it does at least appear in some degree to be a more classic case of corruption. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to me, I think that a bigger question of actually pointing my moral finger and saying, well, these are these people are doing this and those people are doing that. I think that what is much more interesting is what is that these things do in terms of explanatory frameworks? And that means mm. to say, the point you made it and the point I made it during this conversation is doesn't really matter how far and how long and until when you talk about questions of identity and identity construction. The fact is that even if you're not a Marxist, even if you're not a Hegelian, uh, excuse me for throwing these things out there. I mean, you are a philosopher after all. So, well, you know, I, you can get the kid out of the book, but you cannot get the book out of the kid, I suppose. The point that I want to make is simply that intuitively, I think that we all understand that doesn't really matter because money will grant you access. Even yeah. if you are like a completely discriminated community, black in the US, Turkish in Germany, Jew in Moldova in 1907, immediately after the pogroms were like, you know, sort of Moldovans, like Christians were throwing children out of like balconies, uh, first floor balconies, because they were mostly shtetls, but still balconies. Uh, you know, you still, like money can still find you the way either out of the country or find like some sort of you know position i mean to me this was the moment watching oj simpson's trial which was actually one of my first political memories of life in the us it happened mm. almost, i think a year maybe after i arrived or something like that um the end of that trial to me was okay this is a moment in which americans will understand 
that they're not a racially defined nation, but they're a class nation. There is a class struggle here. Uh, yeah. I was completely, completely wrong about that, like absolutely thoroughly incorrect about what Americans would understand. Um, but you, but I, I suppose you see my point, right? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and I think intentionally so. It's much easier to talk about racial divisions and class divisions because class divisions you can do something about politically. You know, you can't change someone's race or someone's ethnicity. You can change someone's place, economic or financial place in the system. But uh, who wants to do that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is something that it, it cuts. I mean, the explanation cuts on both in both ways. Like on the one hand, I am absolutely convinced that Americans actually use systematically color uh, in order to cover over class. Yeah, um, and we see that in, also, and that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. You see that in Germany as well, and I think probably other European countries. To some degree, but I think to some degree. That, but but I think that the notion of a non-biological category of social participation in Europe doesn't matter how crazy they are. I mean, you could be in Spain, which is truly like a troglodyte conservative country, even when you go to the left, uh, and yeah. you still have sort of a very sort of intuitive relation with the idea that people are not really defined, I mean, by the race, ethnicity, or religion, which are, you know, metaphysical, metaphysical, essentially, or biological categories for, for yeah. the peoples, at least, right? You cannot stop being black, or you can not stop being a Jew, if Jew is understood as, as, as let's say, ethno-religion. But right. you can stop being poor, as you very nicely point out. And right. I think this has been a way in which Europe has worked very hard at trying to modulate its actually very ugly old commitments. I think that the U.S. is hopeless, I mean, in this sense. But anyway, we don't need to... Right, because well, the, the, the U.S. has the American dream, where every, the 99% can become the 1%, which is, of course, a mathematical impossibility. Indeed. Indeed. So, I mean, this is, this is, um, anyhow, look, we need to move on. Uh, so sure. what I wanted to uh, ask you about, because you are the German expert here in, in Germany. Oh boy. Um, uh, as well, you can see. Yeah. I mean, so uh, two things that I wanted to just point out, I mean, we're going to move a little bit from Germany, from Poland. I'm sorry. Boy, if we I have to get sued for mixing those two, but we're going to move only 60 kilometers because actually we're going to move it to Berlin, which is 60 kilometers away from the. Well, Polish Berlin country. is just a medium-sized city in Western Poland, so you're basically you're basically staying in Poland. I think that that's actually true, and you can tell by yeah. corruption, sort of poor governance, etc. Maybe that will get us. Sued. Yeah, but anyway, the beer so is worse, and I can get better food in Poznan and 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 Warsaw uh, and yeah. Wrocław, you know. I'm 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 quite I'm 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 a bigger fan of German food than of Polish food I must say but we can tell you about this in a minute what I wanted to ask you about is this which is all of a sudden the center left has become in Germany anti migration I mean you know Yeah um, well Okay what a surprise right I mean this goes back to my 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 earlier statement about the lack of imagination just one second so what happened what was said well, Steinmeier, uh, President uh, Frankfurter Steinmeier, went to Italy in sort of a solidarity trip. Uh, and, and the president in Germany doesn't have any real political power. It's more of a figurehead. He's um, not the head of government, but the head of state, kind of a symbolic uni unifying figure of, of German culture, German society, German politics. Um, and yeah, represents kind of represents Germany on the world stage in a non-political way. Uh, doesn't have any real political power, but can use, you know, his bully pu pulpit, his soapbox to sort of set policy or kind of uh, guide, you know, 
express his thoughts. I uh, went to Italy for a solidarity kind of trip to meet the his counterpart there in Italy. As we know, Lampedusa, the, island, the Italian island that's very close to the coast of North Africa and has been a hotspot for receiving migrants, really like the first destination for so many migrants flow, flowing into, into Fortress Europe. Uh, has really seen, you know, thousands of migrants come in, in a, within a week, within, you know, days, uh, completely overwhelming the system. So Frank von der Steinmeier uh, went there in solidarity and he made the statement saying, basically, we're at our limit. We need a Europe. We finally need a European solution, which if I had a dime over the last decade for every time I've heard we need a European solution, uh, well, we could probably we wouldn't need money for this podcast because we could just personally fund it ourselves. Um, and yeah, he said, we're at our limit. We, you know, our, our towns, our municipalities, our states, we can't take any more. Um, I, I, I think that's more of a political statement than a factual physical statement. Germany is a large country with a lot of space and a lot of money and a lot of resources. I think they could do a lot more. And in Germany's defense, Germany has done a lot in terms of, of course, in 2015, taking in so many uh, migrants from Syria and elsewhere in that region. And of course, then again, at the start of Russia's full-on invasion of Ukraine, taking in uh, you know, a million Ukrainians in a very short time. Uh, so there is, of, of course, there is uh, legitimately so a lot of pressure on the system. Uh, nonetheless, a lot of it could be better organized, better funded. And it's not like any of this is new, right? Uh, Germany and the European Union have been facing um, migrants for a variety of reasons from a variety of, part of parts of the world coming into the European Union or looking to get into the European Union for a decade. And they have not, or more than that, really, uh, and they have not sorted it out yet. And it's just kind of becoming unacceptable. I'm, I, I myself am getting tired of hearing refugee crisis because this is a crisis of, of European politics. It's not a crisis of the people coming in or looking to come. Uh, I mean, I have to say that um, here is here is my uh, baseline. Uh, I don't think that there is any freaking migration crisis. I no. think, that, you know, you have a neo-fascist government sitting in Italy that most of these people have to work with. Uh, and they're trying to figure out how to actually steal votes from them in whatever way they can, including right. sort of joining the ranks in claiming that there has been a disaster. Uh, you can go around Germany. I mean, you know, where you really have tension among communities and they really just cut down sort of ethnic lines in Western Europe. We, I'll go back to Poland in a minute because there is a development that, that I also find kind of delightful. We will talk about Ukraine. But mostly it has been about dark people coming from the south right this has been sort of the line um and where really there are points of tension like france or belgium where you really do have very serious issues uh these are actually very old communities and the failure is not a failure of migration it's a failure of integration like 25 right. or 30 years later the migration that came from the 2015 uh, from the 2015 crisis, which really was a crisis because you had basically sort of a human catastrophe sort of emerging in Syria out of like complete and thorough American and European, you know, mismanagement of that conflict, uh, that destabilization really brought a crisis. But I am really hard pressed to show where is exactly that things have gone tits up in the in the sort of American in the sort of in the Western European landscape, I mean, right. they see are mostly machines that institutionally and governmentally have managed to cope very very well, unless you're actually at a point of entry like Lampedusa where you can be obviously overwhelmed. 
At right. least you're actually on the Mediterranean when you're dealing with people that are actually being brought in by smugglers. But the state inside Germany, inside Sweden, however, what is also true, and I think that this is what I find when you talk about like lack of imagination uh, and lack of a communicative capacity. I mean, this is what we do, right? Media. This is really where I see an absolutely unforgivable failure, which is that what has been, in my mind at least, a complete success. I mean, with obviously, it, you know, human beings, and with human beings in large groups, you'll have criminals, you'll have all sorts of things. But they have failed miserably at making the case that that immigration process was managed in such a sort of such efficient manner that now, 10 years later, we can talk about essentially a success. So yeah. because the AFD has latched to that in Germany, because Le Pen has latched to that in, in France, because Vox has built their bullshit-like program on these stories of migrants coming in, raping your daughter, stealing from you, like selling stuff. And, you know, because they have allowed that, now they find themselves in a position in which, well, yes, they have to stand up and say, yeah, I don't like migration either. And all of a sudden, the socialist in Germany, the socialist in France, the socialist in Italy. I mean, everybody has to say, yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe we should find a way to cut down on these people coming in. Yeah, the, the, to, the, to, to your question about why is Frank Walter Steinmeier, who is a social, I mean, officially as president, he is he is nonpartisan. He does not belong to a party officially as the president, but of course he is a social democrat through and through. And to your point, this is and this is my point about the lack of imagination. No one has the guts to just stand up and say something, you know, interesting and to oppose uh, the far right rhetoric uh, to for 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 to excuse the pun, the alternative in Germany's case, the alternative to the alternative for Germany, the far right party, that you don't have someone saying, actually, this is a success. Actually, this is good for Germany. Actually, this was like, of course, there were problems. We uh, we had a lot of difficulties, but we actually, to use Angela Merkel's famous phrase, wir haben das geschafft. We did it, um, and we're continuing to do it. And the only problems that are there, I shouldn't say the only problems, but the most of the problems that are there, are not on the demand side. They're not from the migrants coming in. The migrant, you know, who who comes to a country <laughs> except for you know rich, well-educated, you know, liberal Western Anglo-American kind of so-called expat digital nomads, except for them. Um, who comes to a country and doesn't want to integrate, doesn't want to learn a language, doesn't want to study, doesn't want to get a job? Who does that? Nobody does. Everybody, no one wants to, no one, no one comes to a country and says, like, I don't want to do anything. Of course not. Like it's ridiculous. If you can't, if you're not getting a job, if you're not learning the language, if you're not, if you're not integrating into the country, chances are it's because the, the the supply side, the state side, the institution side hasn't provided those opportunities. Very funny that you mentioned this because I one of the, the articles that stuck in my mind for like the better part of the last decade and a half was actually an article in Ex-Berliner, which is one of the local hipster like outfits. Don't get me started on Ex-Berliner, but yeah, go on. <laughs> particular article was some imbecile or other uh, American, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, arguing from the top of his lungs uh, how he was here and he was going to stay here and absolutely refuse to learn German. He would right. never learn German. And I was just thinking, I mean, as, as 2015 rolled on and like the migration question came up, uh, imagine that statement, that article being written about Arabic. Right. Uh, and this is this is what and this is and this is to 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 your earlier point about classism versus versus racism. 
you know, as it's a total, it's a completely classist statement, regardless of your actual skin color, because uh, a dark skinned American, a dark skinned American can have the same privileges as a light skinned American because they're from America. Um, you know, this is part of the classism. If you have money, if you're from, if you, if you're college educated, came from the so-called right country, you can get away with all kinds of crap that would be considered, that would be considered, you know, parallel gesellschaft, parallel society, would be considered a ghettoization for any other kind of community. Um, what's funny about this, talking about classism versus, versus racism, you know, these far right parties, you know, I have experience talking to officials from the AfD, the AfD, the Alternative for Germany here in, in, in Germany. Um, and I think this is probably similar with far right or populist parties elsewhere. You know, it, their racism comes out in that they, they say they hate migrants and they say they hate foreigners. But really what they mean is they, they don't like the dark skinned, poorer ones or from poorer parts of the world. Um, they're totally cool with Americans, Canadians, Australians, other maybe Western Europeans. They're fine with that. But actually, if they were really smart, thinking electorally, politically, the people that they don't like just because they're brown are often coming from conservative places in the world that actually ideologically would probably, if you if you appeal to them correctly, would probably support you. You see this, for example, with with uh, Turkish communities in Germany and the, the the Christian Democrats. A lot of Turks, not all, but a lot of Turks vote for the CDU because they're conservative. They're very conservative, regardless of their religion or or where they've come from or where their parents or grandparents came from. Um, they're, you know, contrary to the stereotype that, oh, because you're foreign or because you're poor or because of your religion or whatever, um, you know, there's this idea that therefore you won't vote conservative. Many do. Whereas the, 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 the so-called good immigrants, you know, like the Americans like me, that the AfD is okay with because I have a, the right color skin. Well, not you. My pro not me personally, but you know my you know my sort of profile. These people like me, they won't vote for the AFD. So actually, if the AFD was smart, they would welcome in people from conservative countries, and they would actually dislike the people from the sort of the liberal Western countries that are, quote unquote, too cosmopolitan to ever vote for the far right. I mean, as 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 as, uh, as American Democrats who were really in love with Hillary Clinton found out, right? About yeah. Latinos. It's like well, yeah. I mean, I read actually somebody in the U.S. some 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 or other idiotic left-wing commentator saying, "Well, Cubans are not really Latinos," you know. In, right. in, in, in the U.S., uh, it's the Democratic Party who decides uh, who a Latino is, and you know what I'm, you know what quote I'm referring to. Um, yeah. No, I think you're you're completely right. I think uh, the last point I wanted to make about this migration thing, which I think it's going to be sort of growing and getting uglier as we move towards in the. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm almost convinced that, uh, you know, other than Meloni that promised that she would finish with the issue and, and she has proven that reality has proven her wrong and inept and incompetent at actually dealing with the migration issue, uh, even having to appeal to her European friends who she had disliked for the last 15 years. Um, other than that, I think that, you know, everybody's pretty much praying that, you know, either Belarusia or like, you know, Lukashenko or like Erdogan in Turkey or somebody will actually open the gates uh, in June, possibly, or maybe in May. So as to produce what in the US would be an October surprise. Yeah. Uh, could be a lovely sort of gift to the far right uh, in a May surprise. Just open right. the gates. You know, in, in, in Tunisia, if you're like a very good friend of Meloni and sort of give a boost to the far right all along sort of the Mediterranean coast. Right. I mean, although, of course, Tunisia, Tunisia now has it has a billion euro reason not to do that. So, well, depending who ends up sitting at the top of the commission. Right. I mean, because right. 
they could really just always claim, well, we 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 could manage it, uh, and it turns out that their friends end up at the very top of the cake, mm. the European cake, because actually there is a boost to a sort of anti-immigration political machine. Uh, we have to move on, but I would yes this point, which is, I still it still makes my skin crawl to see. Uh, feminists praising Meloni to see Steinmeier, who comes from the center left, going and paying her visits. Uh, Rute, even, who is like center right, but still somebody who should know better, having a date with Meloni in bloody Tunisia. I mean, as Italy is now basically, you know, hunting down gay families, like, I mean, and yeah. basically putting into doubt, like, I mean, just the least, we, we need to spend an episode talking about. The well, your European history is littered with uh, centrists and center-right uh, weaponizing and bolstering, um, you know, and excusing uh, really crazy, dangerous far-right parties. So, well, I will, I will actually add to that list the socialist and center-left, and the socialist as well, depending on the country you're in. Absolutely. I mean, so, sort of, uh, the acquiescence, this sort of acquiescence and stupid timidity of bastards that could not stand at the right time and say, you know, we have a murderous project here underway, uh, gave us things like Mussolini, gave us things like Hitler, gave us things like Vichy and so on. I mean, Vichy obviously needed the Nazis as well. But anyway, uh, let's leave that one. Let's, let's leave that at that one, yeah. Uh, we will come back to this. Um, and I wanted to uh, sort of bring up, we need to talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, at least in passing. Yeah. We are Cra crazy. Like, like I, you know, I get this breaking news, you know, email push. Like, oh, we're at war again. There's another war. Great. Uh, what? I thought. What's happening? Well, what is happening, Martin? Yeah. Or did well, or happened? Basically, there was uh, another another sort of burst of violence uh, at the well at the Armenian uh, Azerbaijani border. But as a matter of fact, I mean, Nagorno Karabakh is a bit of a peninsula, so to say. Uh, hmm. Of Armenian of Armenian territory, which was captured from Azerbaijan, and it really just sits uh, inside, essentially, uh, Azerbaijani territory. So there is a road that is a legion corridor that unites uh, Armenia with this enclave, quite literally an enclave, uh, completely surrounded by Azerbaijani territory, and Azerbaijan essentially just. Uh, went in and started opening fire, demanding basically, uh, you know, surrender from the Armenian or pro-Armenian, essentially, authorities of Nagorno-Karabakh. Which they got. Which they got. Now, what came after that was, um, and, and by the way, the pressure was enormous on the civilian population who were, were mainly being targeted uh, by a blockade that sort of stopped all sorts of humanitarian aid. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, I have heard uh, Ahmed Hikmet, um, who is one of the advisors to the Azerbaijani government, claiming that this was, of course, misinformation. As a matter of fact, I would like to add uh, to the Ad Hitlerum uh, another <laughs> argument, which is the Ad Misinformatium, uh, which is like everything is misinformation that you don't like, uh, or Hitler, you can choose. Uh, so they claim that there was no blockade, that actually trucks were getting through. But we know from all reports and some of our own colleagues that were on the ground uh, that that was not happening, that as a matter of fact, these things were not reaching them. Uh, and now there is actually a very serious concern of uh, an ethnic cleansing operation uh, against Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. This is very important uh, because although it might sound to many years extremely exotic and extremely distant, 
uh, as it often happens, I find, with Western Europeans, Americans, and Canadians when they talk about yeah. the culture. Uh, it's extremely important because it's actually right in the middle of the sphere of influence of Russia. And these are two powers that uh, were at some point or other, Armenia until very, very recently, uh, on the side of Russia. Russia uh, plays a very ambiguous role here. And it's very interesting because Azerbaijan is a very important energy provider, an energy market sort of provider. So the situation is really quite tense. We are now seeing Armenians, I think this week or next week, Armenians will be actually starting military exercising with the American, with the American military, uh, which actually, I think, a very reduced force, but still a very, very significant signal. Um, so we're beginning yeah. to see actually a hotspot, a geostrategic hotspot emerging. Uh, which for the West could be um, an asset because it would actually might force Russia to, you know, put, they have already peacekeepers at the border. Some of them were killed during this confrontation, but it might force Russia to actually deploy resources at a time in which, of course, they're starved for resources in their main war theater, which is Ukraine. And uh, does, memory, does my memory uh, serve me correctly that wasn't Azerbaijan one of the countries that, the EU scrambled to make a deal with uh, when they cut off um, gas from Russia, when they stopped taking gas from the Russian gas, they need to substitute it with something. Wasn't Azerbaijan on the list of very cuddly countries uh, that the EU wanted to do a deal with to get gas? I think Azerbaijan was actually one of the, was was in the list. Uh, I have to admit that I never followed through uh, what kind of what kind of exchange was there, but I think that Azerbaijan also uh, it's a country that still has sort of a relation, a relation of convenience of some sort with Russia. So when actually the confrontation started two or three years ago, uh, you know, Armenia really expected the Kremlin to side with them and to send weapons. And the Kremlin did not move at all. They actually let right. Armenia get crushed at the border, uh, which was understood to be a very clear signal of them essentially siding uh, with, with Baku, siding um with Azerbaijan. So, you know, the relation, uh, I think, uh, with Europe, with the US and with Russia is one that at this point is, is up for grabs. Uh, it's a very, very interesting spot. And uh, for me, at least as of right now, it's very difficult to actually tell exactly what is moving in what direction. But can we, uh, can we move back to Poland? Of, uh, I, I would love to move back to Poland. I miss my pierogi. Um, but I mean, there's a direct connection here, of course, because as you said, what's happening in Azerbaijan, Armenia is obviously a human catastrophe. I mean, if there really is ethnic cleansing going on, then there are ethical implications, moral international law implications. As, as you once mentioned about, you know, the Balkans, uh, former Yugoslavia in the 90s, how no one could really say the G word because that would that would prompt Western powers that have to get involved, of course, Western powers can be very careful about how they frame and talk about what's going on uh, in this region between Azerbaijan and Armenia. But at a geopolitical, geostrategic level, this, of course, connects right back to Ukraine, which, of course, brings us back to Poland, supposedly, you know, its strongest ally, because the one thing that makes Poland different from other other kinds of its sort of European populist 
uh, right-wingish uh, brethren is that it's not in the pocket of Russia. In fact, Poland hates Russia for obvious historical reasons. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there are limits to its its friendship and its support for Ukraine against Russia. Isn't that right, Martin? That's right. I mean, I have to say that for a, for a country, not a country, I don't think the country hates Russia. I mean, I know that that's not what you mean, but I think that there is a government... Right, politically. A political, a political sort of brand out of being anti-Russian. I mean, you know, there is... Uh, there is a story of uh, uh, Kaczynski's brother, twin brother, uh, leaders and founders of the PIS, who were actually, uh, you know, who actually died uh, on the way to Katyn to actually commemorate the, 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 the Russian execution of massive numbers uh, at the end of World War II of massive numbers of Polish intellectuals like officers and 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 so on. So I mean. There is there is all this lore about the about the Russian murder, but at the very same time, you have to keep in mind, and to me, this is actually a fascinating matter, that ideologically, Putin and the PIS are very very close to each other. So, as a matter of fact, I mean, there is a connecting tissue that has been ambiguous, but has been there, and the Italian. Uh, uh, Rai Due uh, in the show report did actually a, a rather large uh, expose on Malofiev a couple of years ago. Very close mm. to being extremely conservative. He leads, uh, he was part of a hedge fund or he has a hedge fund, very powerful. And he also has a foundation that he sort of, you know, put money from the hedge fund. And he just underwrites far right Christian fundamentalist projects around Europe. One of the places where his money went was actually Poland. So, I mean, Malofiev and the San Basil, the great uh, foundation, was involved in Poland and was involved in Poland not just in sort of random operations, but was involved in promoting anti-gay and anti-trans and anti-Western and anti-liberalization, anti-feminist rhetoric and political programs by people that were very close to the peace. So, I mean, what right. is very interesting is that Yes, people go on the stage uh, much like they do with Brussels, right? They just point the finger. Uh, but financially, obviously, they're completely tied to Brussels. And ideologically, they're actually just very close to the kind of fundamentalism of the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, right. the Russian Orthodox Church in those particular in those particular configurations. Right. So, and of course, and of and of course, but the the history is what probably keeps the Polish uh, Polish political views, the Polish ideology from uh, aligning with with Putinism. Sure. I mean, I think that this is true. There is a sense in the population that, you know, I mean, I think that if you have trouble in any former Soviet country, uh, which had been occupied essentially by, you know, colonial forces of the of the Soviet, of the Soviet, of the Moscovite Empire. I mean, there is no better way to put it, as far as I'm concerned. What you will find, I mean, you know, uh, is a very vivid memory of a lot of brutality. Obviously, there is a lot of syncretism as well, because Russian, you know, migrants married into like Lithuanian families or into Polish families. So that element exists, but you can visit the KGB Museum in Warsaw, the KGB Museum. Mm. Vilnius, I have seen the KGB Museum in Riga, I have seen it as well. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the detention camps in Argentina, which were actually administered by people very close to the American neoliberal project. I mean, they yeah. look like twin, you know, evil brothers separated at birth. So I think that that kind of memory for a certain generation is very present. I think that Ukraine has actually sparked more of that. 
obviously right now, as I think I, I think you were about to tell, uh, the Poles that had been staunch supporters of Ukraine have decided that um, no more Ukrainian grain gets into Poland. So right. Ukraine has gone out and has sued because obviously they have very few lifelines and the export of grain is a super important sort of source of revenue for Ukraine. So they have gone out. So it's not just you. It's not just Poland, but Poland is actually one of the two main operators here. Hungary also involved in this. So they have gone out and uh, sued Poland. And there has been at the, at the WTO, we should say. And and this has been an escalating conflict, uh, you know, political and economic conflict since the uh, onset of the full scale invasion in February 2022, where, of course, that blocked uh, Ukraine's normal uh, export routes for its grain and other and other uh, foodstuffs uh, across the sea, which meant the EU, the European Union said, OK, you can then instead export your grains overland through us. Uh, but the problem is Poland, Romania, Hungary, kind of the countries in Eastern Europe around uh, around Ukraine that is very anti-Russian, very happy to support Ukraine, but also would like to make sure its farmers uh, don't go out of business, especially when there are elections to win, when there are voters to attract, um, essentially said, well, wait a minute, we're also major grain producers. If we have Ukrainian grain coming into our countries, it's going to destroy or at least damage our uh, our own grain output, our, our own industries. And so they petitioned the EU, these countries, with Poland as le leading the way, as you pointed out. Um, they petitioned the EU to basically, uh, you know, stop this and to not have to have uh, Ukrainian grain compete with these individual countries' grain, Poland foremost above them, uh, uh, among them. Uh, but that sort of exception to the export rules was ended in uh, September. And now, technically, Ukraine should be able to export its grain over land routes into the EU and then out to the rest of the world. But Poland and Hungary especially have said, no, you still can't uh, take our grain. Uh, you still can't. Uh, we still won't take your grain. Uh, and that has led to the Ukrainian uh, lawsuit at, at the World Trade the World Trade Organization. I mean, so once again, the economic the economic side of this is sort of large impact for Ukraine sort of lesser probably impact for the rest of the world because actually right. you know, we've been living for about two years without uh, essentially Ukrainian grain, which was one of the main components of, uh, you know, carbohydrate uh, parts. Yeah, major, major, I mean, they help, they, help, they help feed the African continent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But not just that. I mean, you know, in, in Germany, we had like a massive sort of inflationary spike on uh, sort of uh, wheat related items. Oh, and I couldn't. I mean, in in in, Feb in March, April of uh, 2022, I think uh, if, if you could find, um, you know, sunflower oil at all, it cost five or six euros. What used to cost, you know, a euro 50 or the store brand cost 75 cents. Uh, well, it was impossible to find. There was a period of weeks in which actually in many places around berlin you couldn't find wheat flour at all I mean, right it was like the pandemic all over again right exactly so i mean that yeah. was quite remarkable but so there is this element but i think that there is another one going on in poland and that is poland so what happens is that it turns out that there's been an increasing sentiment of anti-ukrainianism uh, in poland that has actually among other things uh, spun into actually a political agenda item. So you have yeah. a lot of middle class in affluent cities like Warsaw, Krakow, etc., who are now complaining about, you know, uh, unemployed Ukrainians who are up to no good, hanging out in corners and drinking vodka. 
getting jobs that the polls cannot get, getting state support that the state cannot get. And I even heard a all the typical tropes, all the usual anti-migrant, anti-foreigner kind of. Exactly. They're taking our vodka so we can't drink it. Indeed. So one of the things I actually heard is uh, it was actually said to me that there were a set of complaints about um, hairdresser appointments. This is not a joke. So hairdresser appointments, uh, one of the complaints was that the Ukrainians were just walking through the door and seeing us like, you know, asylum seekers in precarious conditions, they would be granted things that Poles would never expect for free or would never expect to get easily. Right. Now, um, yeah, let's just let's just grant that all of this is essentially, uh, you know, possible. Uh, I don't think I would get very worked up uh, by, by competing for hairdresser uh, hairdresser uh, uh, appointments, but let's grant all of this. Um, I think that when you begin to see this and you see the emergence of new far, far, far right operators, I mean, in Poland now there is a machine called the Confederation, which seems to make the piss look like, you know, just sort of a progressive dream. Which of... is the problem, right? You know, the crazy people suddenly become looking normal and we just get further and further and further into crazy. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly we're making deals with the with the people and the parties that used to be crazy, but now they're right. considered normal. I mean, right. this happens. Used to, it, 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 it can it can really drive you crazy. There is an extra element, which is not only I mean, you have sort of crazies that are so crazy that make the former crazies look normal. It's that in order to compete with the new crazy crazies, the old crazy crazies need to become crazy crazy crazy, which means right. that you have essentially the entire political machine being systematically pulled farther and farther and farther to the right. Now, yeah. I have to say that I have no sense of relief in Poland turning their attention sort of of exclusionary politics from, you know, poor Syrians escaping Assad uh, to poor Ukrainians trying to save their families from Putin. Uh, it doesn't seem to give like the far right of the Polish political system any pause. Uh, but I think that it does show you again sort of a failure of the European Union to actually call the shots in mm. terms of, in terms of where the political conversation should be. Uh, and obviously, yeah. you know, Poland again, will... failure of imagination, failure of new ideas, um, failure of, of 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 a communication strategy, as you pointed out earlier, just total communication failure yeah. that's just un inexcusable. I mean. The, the, the far the far rights you, you pick your party pick your country the far rights political platform as abhorrent as it might be as much as you might disagree with it it has ideas it has a communication strategy um, and it knows its audience and it and it's not afraid to to stand up and say something and believe in something it might be abhorrent and many people will hate it but it is something you can't argue with the fact that it is it, yeah. it, it, and it might not even be realistic, right? Like if they actually got into power, the things that they're presenting are totally impossible. I'm not talking about that level yet, but just the fact that they're willing to stand up and say things that they believe at right. a time when parties are just flailing for 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 talking points is is uh, in a in a certain way from a communication perspective, at least it's refreshing. Yes, it is certainly refreshing. Which is which is terrifying. Which is of course terrifying. It's frightening. It's frightening. I think because. The, the the one element that I think underscores a lot of this is that I think we all have at some point or other in our day very ugly thoughts about, you know, somebody or 
or groups or things, uh, but we have a certain capacity to modulate our ugly thoughts. Right. It's called, has, it's called empathy. It's called empathy. It's called empathy, but I think that there is also sort of this sort of intellectual and emotional resilience, right? I mm. mean, have a sense of anger because the German state doesn't work appropriately in Berlin. And, you know, I mean, this is like sort of the falling down uh, movie uh, paradigm. It's like you're sitting down there in traffic. You hate somebody, but that somebody's just not here. It's a state, it's the apparatus, it's a machine. The guy that is driving next to you uh, looks like somebody that is enforcing that oppression, but he's in the same freaking boat. Nonetheless, yeah. there you have the gun, there is the window, you shoot him. So yeah. I think that adults learn a certain, or they used to learn a certain type of resilience, emotional, intellectual resilience, that now in this kind of environment in which completely crazy shit can get vomited out and like sort of becomes echoed in this like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, those Jews, they, they do have way too much power. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't have Jews. I mean, this kind of like, yeah, it's yeah. time that somebody says it, right? I mean, it's this sort of, tough talking, truth to power. Yeah. It creates extremely, extremely unsavory political situations, particularly because there is no imagination, there is no communicative skills, and there are no political skills in the opposition. What we have is an endless feel of Hillary Clinton's just shouting, deplorable, 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 deplorable. Yeah. Extremely, extremely dangerous, I would say. Yeah, which, I mean, the last decade at least, if not longer, has proven correct. Um, and, and it's and and it's, it's only seems to be getting worse because when your only when your only talking point is vote for me so worse things don't happen, when you have a negative a negative uh, messaging, and I don't mean negative intent in the sense of pessimistic, but negative in the sense of literally negation, right? Don't or not, not or or against, not what am I for? What am I offering? It's Vote for me so the other guy doesn't get in. Not vote for me because I will give you X, Y, and Z. That is not a winning platform. And right now, you see, you've seen this now for years. And this is this is my problem with Donald Tusk. Like, vote for me, who I've already done to to get the thing that you already had. So worse things don't happen. Like nobody wants to hear that kind of political messaging. That's not a hopeful message of like, well, you know, at least we're not the far right. That's a that's a weak. I don't. That's I don't. Yeah. That's boring. I think I, I, I would say that there is one uh, one added one other danger in that, which is the one that you see now clearly. I mean, you see it in Poland right now with Tusk sort of trying to yeah. present himself as a fresh, new, young, cool face. Uh, right. It is. But the fact is that you see it much more acutely, I think, in France, where Macron basically won the elections as essentially not being Le Pen or being the thing that stopped Le Pen. Right. Which I think that most of the French public, particularly the one that is actually thinking and is attentive, probably knows very well that Macron is the father of Le Pen. Macron's reforms for Hollande and the absolute awful, sort of awful drift of the center-left in France towards this hybrid, like, sort of insipid crap that, you know, the Tony Blairite, Renzi, Zapatero thing, actually is the one that produced a massive political space for somebody like Le Pen. So then you have Macron for two terms sitting there. And sure enough, once again, he's like, you know, he's like the, the, the Le Pen feeder. Uh, so yeah. I think 
problem is not only that they don't have ideas. It's not that you don't want to vote for them because it's also that many of these people are the very source of the problem. It's how we got right. there in the first place. Well, this is the dialectic that, like, the political dialectic that 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 certainly centrist and liberal parties don't want to even acknowledge. Sure. I, they might not even know it exists. They might not even understand the dialectic. But even if they do, they certainly don't want to acknowledge their role in how we got here. All right. So look, we have to really cut it eventually because we've been on we're going to cut it i think we should just just to quickly wrap up the grain dispute i mean the yes. grain dispute spilled over into the war because now poland is saying we're not going to give you any more weapons which exactly. is crazy but okay. of course yes. but it's like it's i mean just to quickly wrap this up again we'll, like we'll, every we'll, time we'll quickly it's fine it's fine we have time every time well i i got i got i mean the sun as you can see the sun is coming around the building i got stuff to do on this in this lovely evening but um you know the Every time you hold Poland's the Polish government to account, say, "Well, what do you mean by this?" or "Can you explain this?" or "This doesn't. This looks fishy." They always sort of say fake news, you know, media, you know, liberal media, uh, you know, exaggeration. And they're just like we saw with the whole visa scandal. Uh, we're seeing this with the weapons, saying, "No, we've never said that we're going to stop weapons. We're just not going to give modern weapons to Ukraine, or we're really focusing on making sure our military is equipped, as if it's a zero-sum game where Poland doesn't get weapons, so we can have weapons." or that doesn't that doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, especially since a lot of the modern weapons that Poland would be getting are getting backfilled from the United States exactly because Poland is giving its weapons to Ukraine. Poland gives its weapons to Ukraine and more modern weapons get backfilled from the United States into Poland. So that argument doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But the, this, the, the, the news that broke this week that Poland, you know, staunch supporter of Ukraine might stop giving weapons to Ukraine was was really quite something to read. That said, what they've definitely uh, made clear is that the delivery of weapons through Poland from other countries is not going to be affected. Right, exactly. But I mean, I think that, so, you know, it is having your cake and eating it too, right? So the internal, yeah. the internal line is like, well, we're we're gonna stand up to this guy calling us on whatever, whatever the grain deal is um, by doing that. However, at the same time, we're gonna continue supporting them. The fact is that the position uh, is everything that I came to expect from the peace in the sort of context of geopolitics. Uh, right. It's kind of this smarmy, double-man, sort of double-speak, unclear, you know, we stand. But the fact at the same time... Populism. It is populism, agreed, but at the same time, I think it's something that in the context of the current situation, I mean, if you read sort of this war the way, uh, you know, I read the war at least, and I think that Poland has been actually claiming that they read the war, a war of aggression by a, you know, brutal Russian operator, like going into a country uh, in Europe and, and murdering people. I mean, forget, forget the question of territoriality, just murders and like war crimes. Then the claim that they are not going to give further weapons to you know to Poland is is to the Ukraine to Ukraine is absolutely unconscionable. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. unconscionable. I mean, you cannot make the case on any moral grounds, and you cannot say anything else after that. Yeah. No, it, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I think I think both sides seem to be trying to tone down the the, the acrimony, and they they said that there's going to be more talks, and again. I think by the October 15th, when Polish elections come around, all this will be solved uh, more shortly thereafter when the election results come out, because this is all electioneering. And 
I mean, this is the reality of the world we live in, but it's very sad that, you know, really matters of life and death, like what's happening in Ukraine is getting is getting put at risk because of domestic politics of a party in Poland. Indeed. Look, uh, we could talk about things that we have uh, we're looking at for next week, but let's not. Let's just surprise our audience. Uh, let's surprise our, our audience of zero. And let's just come in and say, like, hey, I, I am very <laughs> happy with how this went. I mean, I don't know if anybody watched it at all. I mean, we will find out. Uh, but yeah. I, but I, I actually felt I learned a lot from this conversation. I mean, I, I liked it a lot. I like a, first of all, the, the delay is better than Skype. So we can have a better conversation. It's incredible. Yeah. Cause there's before we were talking over each other because there was such a long technical delay. Right. We were, there's a less of a delay. So that's one thing Two, I think this actually saved us more time because then there's none of the editing. Right. And three. So what happens now? This will get saved into yeah. YouTube as a, yeah, yeah. So for, live, for playback live and but it will get saved as, as, as okay so what i'll do is i'm just going to take a i'll just take the youtube link and put it into a substack post and that way people can get it that way okay good do you know why blind people don't parachute is this a joke I don't are know. we ending on a joke do you have objections to ending on a joke no okay so do you know why blind people don't parachute no tell me because it scares the fuck out of the dog. Anyway, I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Have a lovely weekend. You too. Bye.